You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Doesn't that song just make you want to get up and dance? Welcome to Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. It's good to be home at CFRA, as I've been saying since they announced that I would be joining the team here on a regular basis. It's good to be home. But now, instead of, um, you know, couch surfing throughout the station, now instead of sleeping in Rob's room or somebody else's room, now mom and dad gave me my own room now. So welcome to Beyond the News with Brian Lilly, and I hope you're able to join us on a regular basis for this, either live, listening online at uh, CFRA.com or in the podcast. And I hope you're enjoying the show as we go forward. This show is not going to be caller-driven. We're going to take calls, especially later in the show. We'll take calls and we'll get feedback in, absolutely. But that's not the purpose of the show, and that's not going to be the design, nor is it to give you updates throughout the day the way they do on the drive home. I'm not here to get you up and out in the morning or to get you home with the safest route possible. My job here is to talk to you about what's happened throughout the day. My job here is to discuss what's going on in the news, maybe give some context to it. So that's going to be what we're looking at doing throughout this. This morning, you probably heard, if you were listening to The Morning Rush with Bill Carroll or the news throughout the day, You heard about a young man who used to live in Ottawa, killed in Libya. His death was reported on social media sites associated with Libyan fighters, jihadi fighters, according to the site intelligence group. But now, someone who says they know the family is insisting, nope, nope, he did not die fighting. Reading from Stuart Bell's piece in the National Post and... As I've said before, Stuart Bell, if you want to know what's going on in the terrorism file, you need to follow Stuart Bell. He spoke with someone named Khalid Khalid Misaladi from the Canadian Libyan Community Association, who said apparently a bomb fell on that building and the building collapsed on them. The bomb being dropped by forces loyal to a Libyan general. I'm not sure that we're going to be able to believe that. Because Oasis Iguala, Iguila, I'm not sure how to say his name, is the son of a former Ottawa cleric who in the past has urged people to join the jihad. There's video out there of this man telling an audience of Libyan Islamist fighters to take part in jihad, according to a declassified Canadian intelligence report. It seems a little too close. Today on Parliament Hill, the Senate heard four and a half hours of testimony. Four and a half hours of testimony on security matters. Everything from people like this, overseas foreign jihadi fighters, how many Canadians have gone over and joined. Well over a hundred. Some even have Nexus cards, we heard. Nexus cards. Not just a passport, but the, the card that says... You get fast-track treatment when you're heading to the United States, when you're going through customs. That you are a, a trusted traveler. I don't have an excess card. 
I could get one, and I haven't applied for one, but these guys got them. So people with Nexus cards are overjoining the Jihad, and then they're coming back. At least 60 Canadians who have gone over to join the Jihad have come back. But we're to believe that this gentleman just happened to be in a building. His father encouraged people to join the Jihad, but this 20- or 21-year-old man wasn't fighting, we're told. You can color me skeptical on that. I think it's a diversionary tactic, but we'll see. I don't know the man. I don't know his family. I don't know this Mr. Misaladi from the Canadian-Libyan Community Association. But one and one plus two, or one and one, often makes two. And that's what it looks like here. We have a soft spot, and we've long had a soft spot when it comes to terrorism in Canada. And the Toronto Star just showcased that this weekend. As all of this is happening, as senators are hearing hours of testimony on security risks that we're facing, as we're getting reports of yet another Canadian dying in what appears to be a terrorist-related activity, and if he wasn't, if this gentleman from the Canadian-Libyan Community Association is correct, well, then he just happened to be in the middle of a war zone. But as this is going on, the Toronto Star, the Toronto Red Star, as I like to call it, is busy telling us that we cannot call ISIS ISIS anymore. The Toronto Red Star is busy trying to explain to us why we should not call them by their name in English. They will now, going forward, the Toronto Star will call them Daesh. You've probably heard politicians use this name before. John Kerry started it. A couple of people in Canada did a little bit with it. But it hasn't really taken off. And the reason it hasn't taken off is because almost everyone calls them ISIS. I actually prefer the term ISIL, and I can explain why in a moment. But the Toronto Star says, we will, going forward, we will not call them ISIS, ISIL, or Islamic State. We will call them Daesh. Why? Well, if you ask me, it's because they're sniveling cowards who are involved in an attempt to show their false sense of superiority and engage in some political correctness. That's what I think is driving this. But the Red Star actually put out a story. They put out a statement, then they had one of their reporters do the story. And I feel sorry for those reporters. We've all been there if you've been in the business a long time. The boss says something, and you've got to report on what the boss says. The Star is basically saying they do not want to use ISIS or ISIL or Islamic State because you can't connect Islam with anything bad. From the story, it says, that's because the criminal gang that has murdered, raped, and pillaged its way across the Middle East while sending sycophants to slaughter civilians abroad is neither Islamic nor an internationally recognized state. So as of today, the Toronto Star is switching to the title Daesh. In long-form Arabic, it is... Al-Dallah, Al-Islamia, Fi Al-Iraq, Wa Al-Sham. Do you know what that means? The Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, or the Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant. It depends on how you translate that last little bit. The Al-Sham. Do you translate it as Syria, or do you translate it as the Levant? The Toronto Star wants us to use an Arabic name that means the same thing as the name they don't want us to use in English. Why? Because are you going to automatically 
say, Daesh, oh, Islam. No, that's not going to happen. You won't make that connection, and that's what they want. But the group actually says that they are doing what they do in the name of Islam. Their brand of Islam, absolutely, but they say they're doing it in the name of Islam. And the Toronto Star wants to turn around and say, no, they're not Islamic. They also want to say, no, they're not a state. And yet they hold huge swaths of territory across Syria and Iraq. They've set up governing structures. We heard at the Senate committee today that they are a proto-state. That was the term used by security officials. But the darlings down at 1 Young Street in Toronto say, no, we can't do that. Michael Cook, the Star's editor-in-chief, said, these people are a huge multinational gang of killers and rapists. All right, I agree with him there, but he goes on to say, they have no legitimacy as a state, and this name change helps emphasize that. Really, by calling them the Islamic State but only in Arabic? That's ridiculous. The fact is that we need to call these groups by plain names so that we know what they claim to be and what they're laying claim to. Now, I said I prefer the term ISIL. Why? The Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant indicates that they see themselves, first off, as Islamic, secondly, as a state, thirdly, the Iraq and the Levant. That shows what they want. They want Iraq, and they, they want the Levant, which includes parts of Turkey, Cyprus, Jordan, Lebanon, all of these countries, Israel, the Palestinian territories, down into Iraq. By the way, people have pledged allegiance to ISIL in places like Syria. They want the caliphate back, that hook around the Mediterranean Sea, the Middle East, and across North Africa. That's what they want back. That's what their name clearly tells us. But the star wants to obfuscate, just like this gentleman, I think, is doing in the case of Awas Iguala. The young Ottawa man, or former Ottawa man, killed in Libya after his father encouraged people to go join the violence he had. We're being told to obfuscate again. I say no. I say that we've got to speak clearly. We've got to be able to say clearly what we're fighting. We've got to be able to say clearly why we're against it and not subdue to political correctness. So while the Toronto Star is doing this, and likely we're going to be seeing the Liberal government, because the Star is, after all, the official newspaper of the Liberal Party and they often give the Liberal Party their marching orders. So we'll probably see the Liberal government do it. We might even see other media outlets. I'm going to stand here and say, no, I refuse. And don't buy this garbage that this is some kind of insult to them. It is the same thing, only in Arabic. I don't think the, the fighters in ISIS care that the Toronto Star thinks they're insulting them because Daesh sounds similar to some words they don't like. Don't buy it. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly here on CFRA. Back in moments. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Don't mind me. I'm just dancing in the studio. A little bit like Billy Idol, dancing by myself. Going to take a look at the news that was going on throughout the day as you were at work and as you may have heard a bit today. And and sometimes I'll give you a bit of behind the scenes of what's going on. That's definitely the case with the last story I want to bring to you. But um, 
Yeah, it can't be all politics. Can't be all politics because that's boring. That will eventually drive us all nuts, and none of us are purely political beasts. We engage in arts and music and sports and all kinds of things. And I guess I shouldn't be surprised anymore that athletes are being caught doping. I mean, especially when you think of Lance Armstrong, who I had friends that did not believe Lance Armstrong was guilty until he admitted it himself. I had friends that thought Lance Armstrong was absolutely innocent of all the charges until he, where'd he go on, Oprah? Anyway, we've got Sharapova now, the tennis star, admitting that she was found to have been doping at a recent tournament. I wanted to let you know that a few days ago I received a letter from the ITF that I had failed a drug test at the Australian Open. I did fail the test and I take full responsibility for it. For the past 10 years, um, I have been given a medicine called Mildrenat by my doctor, by my family doctor. And a few days ago, after I received the ITF letter, um, I found out that it also has another name of meldonium, which I did not know. It's very important for you to understand that for 10 years, this medicine was not on WADA's ban list, and I had been legally taking the medicine um, for the past 10 years. But on January 1st, the rules had changed, and meldonium became a prohibited substance, which I had not known. I was given this medicine um, by my doctor for several health issues that I was having back in 2006. I, um, I was getting sick a lot. I was getting the flu. Okay, I think we can come Every out of Marie Sharapova. I had a regular EKG. I, uh, I'm not sure that I'm going to buy her on this because if you're playing at that level, you are going to be aware that there are changes coming. And your doctor, if your doctor is treating high-level tennis stars, then they're going to be aware. And she's saying she had no clue? I'm not going to buy it. The other news that uh, will put a smile on your face today was the news of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Premier Kathleen Wynne. Can she ever put a smile on your face? Uh, They were visiting pandas, but John Tory was there too, my old pal John Tory. Uh, And they were there for the naming of the baby pandas. Scott Laurie was on with uh, Evan Solomon on Ottawa Now earlier. The male is named Japan Pan. That means Canadian hope. The female, Jayuyu, which means Canadian joy. The pair each got some alone time with the Prime Minister, the Premier, and the Mayor this morning, and then they were brought outside for some fresh air and a quick photo op. These twins, the first pandas ever born in Canada, but like the adult giant pandas here at the Toronto Zoo, they remain the property of China. Now, experts from China have actually been helping with these cubs, helping to raise them from day one along with their mother. We've had a fair number of experts over in the last three years and these uh, present ladies came over basically because they were experts at hand-rearing pandas and truly they have been. We really uh, probably couldn't have done it without their superb help. Uh, They've been in there 24-7. At at the start they were basically sleeping in the panda house uh, because at that stage we were doing uh, twin swapping and so every two hours they would remove one panda from the mum and replace it with the other panda, put the first panda in the incubator and then at that stage they may supplement it with milk 
or not, um, and then they would continue to do that swapping. So basically every two hours, 24-7. So there you go. Playtime continues here at the Toronto Zoo. The two panda cubs playing indoors right now. Members of the zoo will get their first chance to see the cubs this week. The general public, they get their first chance to see the cubs this weekend. All right, so that's the panda story. There's lots of pictures going to be floating around of Justin Trudeau. Put aside however you feel about him. Stephen Harper did the same thing. Politicians cuddling up with a panda? People love it. I don't know why, but they love it. They're lazy animals. I don't know if you've seen them. And, you know, they just basically sit around and eat bamboo. Uh, here's a story from Parliament Hill that I'll give you some context to. Marie-Claude Bibo is the minister in charge of Canada's International Development Agency. And today she held a news conference saying that she was going to be adding more funding for maternal health, including more funding for contraception. Uh, And this is all in relation to Stephen Harper's plan to have Canada be a leader in maternal and child health. But there's only one thing that the reporters wanted to know about. Why isn't Canada funding abortion? The former Conservative government, as you know, did not fund access to abortion services under the Maternal Newborn and Child Health Initiative. When will this government, you did it, you said it would be um, a priority in your your campaign, Um, when will this government announce funding for that? Right now we are announcing funding for UNFPA and it's more focused on sexual education, family planning and um, provi- provision of contraceptives. This is the focus of our our, our announcement today. So does the announcement go to abortions in countries where it's legal? Then the, the, you're we are not dealing with at all in terms of reproductive rights. At this time, the project we're announcing today, no. Um, but uh, th- we're not against it. But we are right now. We are talking about family planning, supply of contraceptives. And will you be dealing with that subject then? Uh, but, uh, okay. I don't have any dates okay. right Let now. We have different there. projects. Can you believe this? That the minister says she's putting more money into helping mothers uh, and children live past the age of six. This has been the goal all along, including she's adding in contraception and family planning things. And all the reporters want to know about is when will Canada fund abortion? It's insanity. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News on News Talk Radio 580 CFRA. When we come back, the trip south of the border. hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. That's true, you know. I am hated in official Ottawa, but I kind of like it. Welcome to the Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. I'm Brian Lilly from Rebel.media, now from Beyond the News. And part of what I want to do on the program is bring you elements from events that happen that you can't go to. Sometimes because it's too far away, sometimes you don't have access. So we're talking about things like news conferences, speeches. You heard part of the scrum. You normally don't get to hear the reporters' questions, but you heard part of the scrum with the International Development Minister, Marie-Claude Bibot, and just being asked nonstop about abortion. It went on, and then it switched to French and kept going on. Well, I also want to bring you international stories in the same way. And this past weekend in National Harbor, Maryland, right across the river from Washington, D.C., there was a conference that I'm so sorry I missed, but the PC conference, the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party conference was here in Ottawa. So I went to that. We'll tell you about that later on. But right now I want to bring you some elements from CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference. 
John Kasich spoke. Marco Rubio spoke. Ted Cruz spoke. Donald Trump was supposed to, but bowed out at the last minute. So I'm going to bring you some elements from each of or some of their speeches. First off, Ted Cruz. Now, I warn you, th- what is great about CPAC is that you hear them talk about conservative ideas and free enterprise and liberty and a love of country that we only wish Canadians would have for our own country. Listen, the men and women here are a grassroots army. The men and women here love liberty. And let me tell you, as dire as things are, people are waking up all over this country. And help is on the way. This election is going to be about three things. Jobs, liberty, and security. Let's start with jobs. You know, it's easy to talk about making America great again. You can even print that on a baseball cap. But the question is, do you understand the principles that made America great in the first place? The heart of the economy is not Washington, D.C. It's not New York City. The heart of the economy are small businesses all over this country. You want to crush the economy, hammer small businesses like we've done the last seven years. And you want to unchain the economy, lift the boot of the federal government off the backs of the necks of small businesses. If I am elected president, we will repeal every word of Obamacare. We'll pass common sense health care reform that makes health insurance personal and portable and affordable and keeps government from getting in between us and our doctors. And we will pass a simple flat tax. Where every American can fill out our taxes on a postcard. And when we do that, we should abolish the IRS. Now, I understand that a lot of people in this country are angry. I get being angry. I'm angry, too. For far too long, politicians in both parties have lied to us. They make promises on the trail, and then they go to Washington, and they don't do what they said. And you know, no issue captures that better than immigration. Listen, immigration is a law enforcement matter. Immigration is a national security matter. But at its heart, immigration is an economic matter. When you allow 12 million people to come to this country illegally, you take away millions of jobs from U.S. citizens, from legal immigrants, and you drive down wages for everybody. Now, in a Republican primary, everyone says they oppose 
illegal immigration. The question to ask was in 2013, when the battle over the Gang of Eight amnesty bill was being waged, where did you stand? Did you stand as far too many establishment Republicans did with Barack Obama and the Democrats pushing amnesty on millions of Americans? Or did you stand as I was proud to stand with millions of Americans saying, no, we will not have amnesty? I think a shot at both Marco Rubio there, who was part of the Gain of Eight, and Donald Trump, who helped fund, what was it, five of the eight members of the Gain of Eight? The Conservative Political Action Conference in Washington is amazing because it is not a party-driven event. It is an activist-driven event, and the party brass go to kiss the rain. That's how it's supposed to work. It started to drift a few years ago. Now it's come back. Listen to Marco Rubio talk about issues such as free enterprise in a way I wish we could hear a Canadian conservative at any level discuss the issue. We must re-embrace the principles that made us the greatest nation to begin, to begin with. And that's why the theme of this gathering, that our time is now, forces us to answer a second question, and that is what does it mean to be a conservative in the 21st century? I can tell you what it can never mean. Being a conservative can never be about simply an attitude. Being a conservative cannot simply be about how long you're willing to scream, how angry you're willing to be, or how many names you're willing to call people. That is not conservatism. Conservatism has never been about fear or about anger, not at its best. Do people have a right to be fearful of the future right now? Yes. Because for over two decades, leaders in either, neither party have solved the problems before us. Do people have a right to be angry about not just the political class, but every institution in society? Absolutely. But neither anger nor fear will solve our problems. It can serve to motivate us, but it will not solve our problems. What will solve our problems is a specific set of ideas built on bedrock principles that made America the greatest nation to begin with and applying those principles to the unique challenges of this new century. And those principles are not complicated. It begins with the notion that this nation was founded on a powerful spiritual principle, that our rights do not come from government, our rights do not come from our laws, our rights do not come from our leaders, our rights come from God. Our government does not exist to decide these rights, nor to grant them. Our government exists to protect them. And that is why we have a constitution that limits the power of the federal government to a few specific but important things. And we have abandoned that. We have abandoned it in both political parties. We have reached a moment in our history where we think that every problem in America has to have a federal government solution. Every problem in America does not have a federal government solution. In fact, most problems in America do not have a federal government solution, and many of them are created by the federal government to begin with. And so to move forward in a better direction, it does mean re-embracing and following the First Amendment. For what that stands for is not just the right to believe anything you want, but the right to live out the teachings of your faith in every single aspect of your life. 
It means understanding that the Second Amendment was not a nice suggestion. It is a constitutional right to protect yourself and your families from terrorists or criminals. It means adhering to the Tenth Amendment in which power, if it even belongs in government, is reserved to the states. Not because we don't care about our problems, but because we care, we know that when the federal government tries to solve these problems, it often makes them worse, not better. So let's return power back to the states. Conservatism means re-embracing true free enterprise. True free enterprise, which I believe in not because my parents were wealthy, not because I inherited millions of dollars, because I did not. But because as I walked onto the stage here today, I walked through the kitchen of this hotel and I met people and shook the hands of people who are doing the jobs my parents once did. You know why they have a job? You know why they have a job? You know why my parents had a job? Because free enterprise works. Because someone created those jobs. And with those jobs, they are able to feed their families and raise them and buy homes and a better future. Free enterprise is the best economic system in the history of the world because it is the only system where you can make poor people richer and you don't have to make rich people poor. Amazing. The only system where you can make poor people rich and don't have to make poor people poorer. That is a system that we have in Canada, by the way, free enterprise. But do you hear any politician make that suggestion? Do you hear it ever? This is why I love going to CPAC. It's why I love bathing myself in the free enterprise roots of American conservatism, which does have a home here in Canada as well, because they are unabashedly patriotic, but they're also unabashedly in favor of liberty and free enterprise, something that we have to relearn here. Now, if Donald Trump had shown up, I would play you Donald Trump, but he did not. So I want to play you one last segment. It's a couple minutes long, and it's by my friend Glenn Beck. Now, if you've heard of Glenn Beck but have not listened or watched, don't believe the hype. Don't believe the headlines. This is a man I've sat and talked with. This is a man I've worked with. He is a man of integrity. He is a smart man. He's not a lunatic. Listen to what he has to say at CPAC as he closed out the conference Saturday night. From the day our Constitution was ratified... America rose like a rocket. It took off for all the world to see, and we carried the rest of humanity with us. Individual liberty and a government prevented by law from interfering with us. This is what made America great, and it is the only thing that can make America great again. So let's compare. Let's compare and contrast what we know to the alternative. Because mankind has spent over a century, the last 100 years, experimenting with a live A-B test. Liberty versus tyranny. And what are the results? What was the leading cause of unnatural death during the 20th century? Because it wasn't cancer. It wasn't car accidents, it wasn't drugs, it wasn't alcohol, it wasn't terrorism, it wasn't gangs, it wasn't inner city violence. The greatest murderer over the last century was governments. Socialist, communist, fascist, and theist governments. 
During the last century, totalitarian governments murdered, murdered over 120 million of their own citizens. And that doesn't count the countless millions who died of disease and malnutrition, suffering on government health care plans and in government food programs. And they did it always, time and time again, in the name of progress, in the name of for the better good. While the American people, on the other hand, were delivering the world a cure for polio, nuclear fission, refrigeration, telephones, televisions, the internet, lunar rocker, rockets, the iPhone, and encryption. Pro <laughs> Progressivism and socialism at the same time we're delivering the world death camps, forced starvation, gas chambers, forced abortion, and genocide beyond our wildest imagination. If the goal truly is to make America great again, the one thing we do not need more of is a government deal or a government program. Glenn Beck at CPAC, telling the truth about progressivism in a way that we need to continue to do. The greatest killer of people in the last century were progressives, socialists, and communists trying to enact government policy. If you have not seen the Black Book of Communism, you must. This is the truth that needs to be told at our dinner table so we do not forget and so that our children do not learn that socialism is just another option. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. More in moments. You want to see those full speeches? Go to brianlilly.com. I've posted them now. brianlilly.com. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Stone Roses, Brian Lilly, Beyond the News. Speaking of Beyond the News, this goes well outside of my normal ballywick of politics, and that is to football. But if, you, if you've been listening to me, watching me for a while, whether it's been here on CFRA or at Sun News or elsewhere, you'll know that I am football mad. I love football, particularly the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, but I love the Red Blacks. I love the Ticats. I'm from Hamilton. You'll forgive me about that. I don't have an NFL team, but I still love watching a good game. And today, one of the best in the game announced he was retiring after winning the Super Bowl and announcing to everyone that he was going to have some cold Budweiser. Peyton Manning called it a day. Here's part of Manning from his news conference. When I was drafted by the Colts, Indianapolis was a basketball and a car racing town. But it didn't take long for the Colts to convert the city and state of Indiana into football evangelists. We ended my rookie season 3-13, and 13, and in the process, I set the NFL rookie record for interceptions, a record that I still hold today. <laughs> Every year, I pull for a rookie quarterback to break that record. <laughs> Andrew Luck, Matthew Stafford, Eli Manning, Cam Newton. I still kid Eli that he would have broken it if he had started all 16 games. In the beginning of my time in Indy, the team's struggles were agonizing. My grandfather would call me weekly to ask if his favorite announcers, John Madden and Pat Summerall, would be broadcasting our game. Pawpaw, I'd say, 
We're only two and eight right now. We're playing the three and seven Bengals. Madden and Summerall don't broadcast those kinds of games. Fast forward to my second year when we had gotten things going a little bit. We were playing the Dallas Cowboys, including Troy Aikman, Emmett Smith, Michael Irvin, and Deion Sanders. I called Paul Paul. Guess what? Madden and Summerall are broadcasting the game. He said, I can't believe it. <laughs> he was elated. He was very proud. And we beat the Cowboys that week. And we let the world know that the Colts had arrived. Make no mistake about it. We were coming. And we went on to do some phenomenal things, like winning at least 12 games seven years in a row. And of course, winning Super Bowl 41. And I was truly honored and proud to be a part of it. While I've obviously changed teams, I've had the same football representation for almost two decades. I owe Tom Condon many thanks. He has represented me with class at every juncture, and he'll always be a great friend. A week before the Super Bowl, our daughter Mosley asked me, Daddy, is this the last game? Yes, Mosley, it's the last game of the season. I sure do want you to win that trophy. I do too, Mosley. And that's what we're going to try to do. Then she asked, Daddy, is this the last game ever? And that's just when I shook my head in amazement, because I was thinking Morton Adam Schefter had gotten to my five-year-old daughter to cultivate a new source. <laughs> When I look back on my NFL career, I'll know without a doubt that I gave everything I had to help my teams walk away with a win. There were other players who were more talented, but there was no one who could out-prepare me. And because of that, I have no regrets. There's a scripture reading, 2 Timothy 4-7, I have fought the good fight and I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Well, I fought a good fight, I have finished my football race. And after 18 years, it's time. God bless all of you, and God bless football. Absolutely. God bless football. What would I do without it? Honestly, uh, when football season, part of the reason I love being a, a fan of all football is that the season for me gets to start in June with the CFL and end at the Super Bowl the end of January, beginning of February. If you're just an NFL fan, it starts late, finishes early. But if you love all football, and Henry Burris was on the morning rush this morning. So we've got a great quarterback here. We've got one of the greats of the CFL playing in Ottawa, living in Ottawa, loving Ottawa, and often working out of this building. So I've had the pleasure, only briefly so far, but that will change, to meet Hank. Got to meet Hank in the building here, and this morning he walked in because he was filling in on CTV Morning Live. He walked in to talk to Bill Carroll on the morning rush, and he said, you know, I'm a fan of all football. He said, you go down to the United States, people don't care what kind of football. They don't say I'm a CFL fan or an NFL fan or a college fan. They just say I'm a football fan. And think about it. Friday Night Lights, that's high school. Saturday is college ball. Sunday is NFL. And there's a lot of Americans that watch the CFL down on ESPN2 and so on. But Burris was talking, and he and Carol got into a conversation about something that's going to dominate the game over the next little while, and that's the discussion about concussions. It's going to be interesting to watch what happens with football. More and more parents are saying, 
you know, with the concussion issue, I don't want my kid playing football. Yeah. How do you think that's that the CFL and the NFL are going to adapt to that? Well, you know what? They need better teaching, and uh, that's the first and fo- foremost point because athletes are getting bigger, stronger, and faster. They may not be as 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 smart as we were, but the physicalness of all games that have borders are starting to shrink the field or the playing surface at their own. I think you know instead of trying to teach guys to blow guys up, run through them, see what you hit, use your head to hit hit your target. They need to learn the right techniques to tackle, meaning use your shoulders, run through your uh, the ball carrier, whomever has the ball with your shoulder. That's how we were taught as kids, but now it just seems that that's going out the window because now it's taught to seek and destroy. So we got to get back to the fundamentals of the game, teaching kids to use the right techniques on playing the game. I know a lot of parents are scared, but that's just the status of all sports that we have, including basketball, where it's so physical now, if you touch a guy or blow on, him, blow on his ear, you're going to get a flagrant foul. So, I mean, you know, they're trying to find ways to cut back on the physical nature of the game, but with the status of the athletes and the way they're growing and the technology that's out there, they're pretty much going to do away with all contact sports. And that's a fear, right? I know that my own mother wouldn't sign my waiver for playing football, and that was back in the 80s, back in the prehistoric era when dinosaurs roamed, as my kids would tell you. My mom wouldn't sign it. It's not new, but it is going to only get worse. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. We're going to talk with Phelan McAleer, the man behind Frack Nation, next. More to come. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. I was telling you at the top of the show about the Toronto Star and their desire to stop calling ISIS ISIS. They want to call them Daesh. Posted the the piece I did for the rebel.media up on there, and people are saying, well, yeah, but this is the right thing to call them because they don't like it. I said, you do realize that it means the same thing just in Arabic, and most of us don't speak Arabic. There's an interesting conversation going on there. Facebook.com slash Brian Lilly if you want to join it. Uh, It's funny that I mentioned Facebook off the top because the next story kind of deals with Facebook, but it also deals with something called Frack Nation, a movie made by friends of mine a couple of years ago. Environmentalists say that fracking for natural gas is really bad for you. I've lost my taste for granola. The cows are looking at us funny. You got that thing now, honey. What's it called? Monocyphala pimple. I can only make right turns. I keep losing my gravitas. I find unfamiliar items in my pocket. If I run up there, I have to hold myself. My hair is not that curly anymore. I've started piling rocks in my closet. <laughs> it's all nonsense. <laughs> that is the trailer, or the, sorry, one of the ads for Frack Nation, a movie that debunked the idea that fracking was causing all kinds of problems. Phelan McAleer, one of the people behind it, met him several times, including at CPAC that I was telling you about earlier. He joins me now. Uh, Phelan, you've been covering a trial related to fracking and Frack Nation in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Fill us in on, on what's going on. Why is uh, fracking such an issue? Why is it the center of a court case in Scranton that you're taking the time out of your life and leaving sunny Los Angeles to be in cold Scranton? You know what? It helps if I hit, it helps if I hit the button, Phelan. That way we can hear you. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> so, so why are you taking the time out to to head to Scranton to follow this? What's going on well, there? Well, I mean, it's not a trial about fracking. It's the trial about fracking. This is Dimmock, Pennsylvania. This is the ground zero of fracking pollution. This is where it all started. This is featured in Gasland. This is the center of Gasland, both Gaslands. 
um, you know, it's all the celebrities have been there. Hundreds, if not thousands, of national, international articles have been written about the fracking pollution in, in Dimmock, Pennsylvania. Susan Sarandon's been there. Tim Robbins has been there. Mark Ruffalo's been there. Uh, you know, Yoko Ono's been there. Personally, I think that's part of the punishment also. Um, <laughs> but, you know, th- this this was the original fracking, original sin. And now, eight years after the, all the media, it's finally come to court, come to trial. And when when, it's, when the people are put under oath, when the evidence is examined, there is no evidence there. I mean, in the opening day of the trial, the plaintiff's own lawyer said, we have no scientific proof that there's any fracking fluid in the water. That's their own lawyer said that. They, the, hold just, on. They said that at the beginning of the trial. Yeah. yeah. In Frack Nation, um, you pointed out that some of this was going on. People saying, well, I can light my tap on fire, but you know, we're talking about places with names like Burning Springs. The water yes. has always been something that you could in- ignite. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, 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 the defense have brought in two, an 83-year-old woman and an 87-year-old woman who said that they were lighting their tap water on fire in the 40s, in the 50s, in the 30s. Uh, it's just what people did in this area. There's a lot of gas in the water. That's why these evil oil and gas companies are there, because there's a lot of gas there. And some of it comes up through oil wells, some of it comes up through naturally through holes in the ground, and some of it comes up through the water. And that's the way it's been for hundreds of years. The Burning Springs, that was, it was the Indians who called it that hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. This has been an ongoing process. So this is all emerging finally. Uh, you know, And you've got a, a plaintiff who's saying, oh, my children were poisoned, my children were sick. And they said, well, Where's when you brought it to the doctor? What did they say? And he said, "I never brought them to the doctor." Oh, if my children are sick, I take them to the doctor. Yeah, is, isn't that the normal poisoned, thing you, to do? Yeah, yeah. If your children are poisoned, you take them to the doctor. You don't go to the media and you don't go to 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 trial lawyers. You go to the doctor. Maybe afterwards you go to the media and the trial lawyers, but you actually find out what's wrong with them and you and you cure them if you can. You know. And then one of the other plaintiffs. He was so upset with his water being contaminated and poisoned that he built a million-dollar house on the property. <laughs> you know, if it was contaminated water, I would not be building there. Yeah. Um, so you have been reporting on this trial. Mm-hmm. Are there other media there? Not really. I'm the only reporter who's been consistently there all through the trial. So this um, this is similar to when, and, and people that have... Uh, seen our interviews back in the Sun News days, will remember you were the only reporter at the Gosnell trial, and and you brought out information that otherwise we wouldn't have heard about. Now you're at this trial, and the media are ignoring it, but they're willing, to, if Matt Damon shows up and says, we're poisoning our children, he'll be willing to show up, yeah. or the media will be willing yeah, to show but, up. You know, so, but, but uh, there's a real hunger out there for the truth, so I've been posting these stories, and I urge people to go and look at it on the Frack Nation Facebook page. It's getting a lot of response. I've been posting a lot of stories. And, of course, you know, they, the anti-fracking movement, they hate this. They absolutely hate the truth is coming out. So what did they do? They organized a campaign to, 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 to trip, trip up the stories, to, to flag them as inappropriate, and got Facebook to censor the stories. They withdrew, they, they, they deleted two of the stories, and they suspended the page for 24 hours and warned me if I continued to, pro- uh, to post inappropriate stories, the page could be deleted permanently. So did, did they tell you what was inappropriate about them? No. Or just no, that Facebook pe- people don't do that. They just pulled it and said, this is inappropriate. 
and then they pulled another waited a few days pulled another one and sent me this thing saying if you put, keep posting stuff that's inappropriate the page could be deleted permanently and you so had your, you had your page it, locked for a while didn't you Sorry? Did you have your page locked down for a while where yeah. you couldn't post? Yes, yeah, sorry, over the weekend, for 24 hours, I was unable to post anything, and that was the punishment for posting the truth about fracking, for posting court reports. That's all. Reports from a court, you know, which are almost, you know, which are privileged in any other country. And, uh, you know, so... Uh, uh, look, we are, um, as you know, I'm one of the co-founders of The Rebel, and we yes. rely on social media to get our word out, like everybody in the media does now. CFRA here does. Everybody in the media relies on social networks to get your message out, to get your mm-hmm. stories out. And and increasingly, they're being censorious, to to be blunt. Uh, Milos Yiannopoulos from uh, Breitbart was, you know, he he wasn't blocked, but they said, oh, you're no longer verified because people are reporting you. Verified is what they do for journalists so that you know that this person is legitimate. If you're a public figure, journalist, or, or, or celebrity or something, they'll say you're verified. They took that away because the left kept complaining. They said, we don't want this guy. He, he's harassing people. They never told him what he did. This has happened to others. Now it's happening with Facebook. It's very disturbing. Yeah. I mean, I'm just looking at one of our posts. Like It has 943 likes, 197 shares. I posted a couple of videos you know, 40,000 views, 20,000 views. I mean, people want this truth. Uh, lots of people don't want it, right? But, you know, they, they can't have a heckler's veto over what, what, what people get to see. And, uh, you know, that's, that's how the, the left work, and that's what they, they've been very successful. Um, and, and, and now I'm worried about posting stuff because I'm worried that the page will be permanently deleted. And if that happens, then how do you get your word out? Yeah, well, I mean... How does the truth get out? That's even more important, you know? Phelan, we're dealing with similar things here with uh, untruths, lies being told about the oil sands. I mean, you mentioned Mm -hmm. uh, they brought in witnesses who who said back in the 20s and 30s they were lighting their water on fire. Uh, If you read history books, you'll know about places like this across North America. You read history books, you know that David Thompson, one of the Scottish explorers that came over and explored the north of Canada, talked about the goop ooing out of the grounds where the oil sands are now. It was ooing mm-hmm. out of the grounds, and they used to use that to uh, to seal their boats. Yeah, That's what they yeah. taught them to do. And yeah. now we're being told you can't talk about this. You've got to sec- uh, accept the environmental lie. Where can people find out more about Frack Nation? Where can they watch Frack Nation so they can get a different side, a different point of view? Well, Frack Nation is available on in Netflix and Amazon Prime, uh, Amazon uh, but, you know, the, for all the up-to-date stuff, go to the Frack Nation Facebook page for as long as it exists. What I've been asking people to do is to go to the Frack Nation Facebook page, like everything, share everything, comment on everything, so that at least when Facebook go there, they'll see that there's a huge community uh, that want this, and that might make them think twice about uh, suspending anything uh, or, or deleting anything. All right, so trial's back on. You'll be in court tomorrow reporting more on what's happening and and bringing us the latest. So if we want to know what's really going on for people that claim their children are sick from fracking but didn't bother taking them to to the doctor, we can follow Frack Nation on Facebook and and get your reports. Great. That's great. Please come on and let me know what you think. All right, Phelan McAleer joining us now. Uh, He is with Frack Nation, other projects. You want to follow this man. You want to know what he's talking about. Phelan, all the best to you. We'll chat again soon. All the best. Bye. Bye. All right. I'm going to go do that right now. During the break, I'm going to go to Frack Nation's 
Facebook page and like it. I encourage you to do the same. If you're on Facebook, well, like my page as well. It's facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. Get my stories in your feed and then share them. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk Radio 580 CFRA. He's hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. By now you've heard about Justin Trudeau going on 60 Minutes and insulting Americans. You know, it so, might be nice if they paid a little more attention to the world. So having uh, a little more of a, an awareness of what's going on in the rest of the world, uh, I think is, is what many Canadians would hope for Americans. You know, some of you might be thinking, hey, Lily loves this. I mean, it makes Trudeau look bad. No, I actually don't. Just posted this, uh, you know, I was mentioning Facebook with Phelan. Just posted my report for The Rebel on this. I don't want Justin Trudeau to look bad on the international stage. And it's simple. Americans don't look at a Canadian leader and say, oh, he's the liberal leader. He's the conservative leader. Most people are just looking and saying, oh, there's the the prime minister of Canada. So, Drew, <clears throat> sorry, cough starting on the first day of the new show. How's that for you? Just like Bill Carroll this morning talking about how he's got the flu on his first day. But Trudeau is going down to Washington this week. He's having a state dinner. It's a big deal. And he's on 60 Minutes this week, this past weekend. 60 Minutes is a big freaking deal. I I was looking at the ratings. Other than Oscar weekend, where they had just under 7 million people, they normally will bring in 10 million or more to watch this show. And if you know anything about Canadian political leaders, they have a hard time getting attention. People don't care. Even in the 2008-2009 financial crisis, people didn't care. The whole world's collapsing and Canada's doing great. And nobody cared. My friends who worked in politics back then, the guys that helped start Sun News, used to work in the prime minister's office back in the day. They ended up hiring the dream team of PR agents to go help Stephen Harper get some uh, attention in the American media. They hired a former Bush PR guy and a former Clinton PR guy and had them call around and get Stephen Harper onto the business program specifically to say, look, the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket, but Canada's doing okay. Justin Trudeau doesn't need to do that because he's young, he's dreamy, he's got great hair. And they love him. He's progressive, so's the media. They love him. Love him, love him, love him. <gasps> Not kidding. So they're flocking to him. He's had profiles in the New Yorker where he said there's no core Canadian values. He's had profiles in Vanity Fair where he and his wife are talking about, you know, all they're doing for the poor, but I think she was wearing a $5,000 dress. You know, all of this. I actually don't want them to look bad in any of these international profiles. Do you know why? Because it's a reflection on Canada, and I just want Canada to look good on the international stage. And if you hated Stephen Harper, you shouldn't have cared about your hatred for him. You should have hoped that when he went on the international stage, he did the country proud. We should all be like that when our leaders go abroad. 
or when they're profiled in the American media. So Laura Logan, a brave reporter, she went into Tahrir Square in Egypt during the middle of the uprising. This is a woman who can do hard-hitting journalism. She did this piece with Justin Trudeau, and it was fluff. But I don't care about that. I care about Justin Trudeau essentially saying that Americans are ignorant of the world. It makes him look bad. It makes us look bad. And I'm not happy about that. I've been to, I don't know how many news conferences with American presidents, Canadian prime ministers and American presidents. I've been to a lot of these international events. And when the American media stand up and ask the president a question nine times out of ten at one of these events, it's about, Mr. President, in Iran today, blah, blah, blah. Mr. President in North Korea, Mr. President in South Africa. They don't care about what the announcement is. They're asking about some world hotspot. They're asking about international affairs. And those stories are printed in newspapers. They're heard on radio reports. And yes, even television news. If you watch anything other than the local news in America, yes, you will see international news. And Justin Trudeau turns around and paints all Americans with the same brush. This was a red letter headline on Drudge Report on Friday. I talked about it on the air when I was filling in for Rob. This was a major story. It hit newspapers, it hit websites, it hit talk radio. He made Canada look bad. I wish he hadn't. If you aren't crazy about what Trudeau said, I invite you to go to my Facebook page and share the video there, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. Now, there's a story that is both national and local in importance, and I want to get to this quickly. And that is that a memorial planned for veterans of the Afghan war and those that fell during the Afghan war appears to be getting put off by the liberals. Ron Ambrose stood up in the House of Commons and asked Veterans Affairs Minister Kent Hare about this today. They want to honor our heroes. So why is the prime minister denying proper memorials for those who served and in some cases gave their lives? Honorable Minister of Veterans Affairs. It is very important to honor the men and women who served in Afghanistan. In 2014, a motion for a memorial to this mission received unanimous support in this House. Also, the dates of the mission were inscribed on the National War Memorial. Veterans Affairs is working closely with Canadian Heritage to advance this initiative. More information regarding the project will be available in the coming months. That is the most noncommittal answer ever, which leads me to believe that the stories that say the Liberal government is about to walk away from this project are true. The Ottawa Citizen reporting, Lee Berthium saying that they are going to walk away from a project to honor our military veterans. The Discover Canada guide that's being brought in for newcomers, the Liberals are going to rewrite it because they don't like that the one written by the Conservatives talked about issues such as the War of 1812. The Liberals are going to scale back anything to do with their military. They're always fine with peacekeepers, as long as they don't have guns, which isn't how Mike Pearson envisioned it. But if you go down to the Peacekeeping Memorial on Sussex, you'll notice no guns, just binoculars. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. We'll head to the PC convention that happened this past weekend, my interview with Patrick Brown and more after the break. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. 
spent part of the weekend at the Ontario Progressive Conservative Convention. Got to tell you, in the hospitality suites, a lot of talk, an awful lot of talk about U.S. politics. That's a story for another day. A couple of good interviews, and we're going to bring them to you in a moment. But first, a, a couple of quick updates. One, my old pal from Sun uh, Sun Newspapers, Joe Warmington, the scrawler, one of the best columnists going, a man that works contacts like an old gumshoe reporter, just emailed me his latest, feds leave Afghan interpreter hanging. This is an Afghan interpreter that John McCallum had said could come to the country, and he looks like he could be deported from Germany, where he's been waiting to come to Canada, tomorrow. This is someone that helped our troops for three years. You want to read the story, you want more info, go to Twitter, twitter.com slash Brian Lilly. I just tweeted it out, and we'll see if Joe has time. I, I emailed him. We'll see if he gets back to me quickly. Uh, maybe we'll get him on for a couple of quick minutes to, to talk about this. Shocking. We need to do more to help those. Secondly, the Liberals just stood in the House of Commons and stripped away the rights of union members to know how their dues money is spent and to do away with the secret ballot. That's something I'm sure we're going to be talking about on tomorrow night's show. But at the Progressive Conservative Convention, it wasn't just Patrick Brown. We'll bring you his interview next. Okay, not right now, but next. Right now, I talked with a guy named Jamie Ellerton. Jamie, someone who was involved in provi- in federal politics for a long time, worked for uh, cabinet minister for everything, Jason Kenney, and now is in Toronto. He is a a you know centrist conservative who wants to make sure, but he's libertarian in some ways, and he wants to make sure that conservative ideas or right of center ideas, center right ideas, as he called them, make it out to young people that are living in urban areas. We sat down to talk about his new project, Blue Skies Ontario, at the convention. You founded a group called Blue Skies Ontario. That's right. Fill me in on what you're all about. So Blue Skies Ontario is the idea incubator for Ontario centre-right. After the last provincial election loss... The disaster? The disaster. Mm -hmm. uh, Leif Malling uh, came up to me, who I co-founded the organization with, and said, we don't just need a new leader. There's something bigger at play here that needs... We have an honest conversation of putting everything on the table. We need Blue Sky thinking. So it started as a one-off event with the Blue Skies Initiative Toronto Ideas Incubator has since grown and grown a following of people looking to actually, how do we grow the centre-right in Ontario? The Ontario PC party is probably going to be there. It may even form the next government. But we need to do more to build a culture of ideas and politics and um, actual movement on the centre-right side of the political spectrum to support the party and support the movement so that we win the battle of ideas so we do see more in government, whether that's under Premier Brown or other leaders. So we've seen that happen at the federal level to some degree, a smattering of think tanks and the like, and we know that's big in Washington with American politics. Is, is that essentially what you're trying to do? Yeah, I think there's a real vacuum in the marketplace for ideas, for attention to provincial issues from a center-right perspective. And if we look at the word conservative, like I'm a proud member of the Conservative Party of Canada, and I was proud of serving in the Harper government as a political staffer, uh, and I am a small-c conservative. But if I look at it from a cultural standpoint, in urban centers in downtown Toronto, there are no shortage of people who are approaching our economy and the disruption of the free market in that regard. There are no shortage of people who are younger who would like to combat liquor laws and kind of get rid of the nanny state in that kind of regard. But the second they hear the word conservative, they think John Stewart and it gets lampooned and they don't want to be associated with it. So we're hugging the ambiguity that is center-right, and I think that is a spectrum, and not everyone's going to agree with it. But if you look at how Dwight Duncan's talking now on fiscal issues, like, where was that when he was in office? We would love to have him come to a Blue Skies Ontario event and talk about the need for fiscal reform in Ontario and getting us onto a path of sustainability. Yeah, I've seen more than a couple of liberals end up 
up sounding much more conservative when they leave office and they're not with their party anymore, <laughs> right? So there's do, a shrewdness you, to the way liberals in Canada practice their politics that makes them so effective. Do you think that young people, millennials in particular, are just turned off of the word conservative? Is that it? Yeah, I really do think there's a branding issue there, and I think the party has failed to kind of instill at a younger age on campus and throughout the civil society as to what conservatism is, and we're not filling that vacuum, our opponents are. What would center-right policies be then? What, what uh, You've mentioned liquor laws, you've mentioned, uh, before we went on camera, you were talking about things like the sharing economy, Uber, I'm guessing Airbnb, things like that. These are things people use because they like, but regulators want to shut down. Yeah, so I think if you look at even how Airbnb and Uber talk, in their early days, they were all banging their fists, disrupting, and kind of really like bull in a china shop. As now you've seen those companies matured, they've started with more. They've talked to consultants. They've moderated, not moderated, they've moderated their language, and they're a little less confrontational as they were as they look to now firmly establish. And now they have that foothold and know they have public support. They're now looking to get the regulatory side so they continue to operate. What can we as a center-right movement do to continue to enable disruptors in the future and grow that? Uh, the center-right to me is what... Uh, free market on the economic sense of stuff, but also individual freedom. I think there's definitely a place for thoughtful social conservatism on the right, uh, but kind of the bombastic stuff you're seeing in the Republican primaries, I don't think that flies in Canada, and I don't think it's constructive from an actual solution standpoint in the marketplace of ideas. And the kind of, if you're young and urban, you kind of like are probably indifferent to most things. Uh, you probably don't spend much time thinking about what would typically be associated with social conservative issues. And we want to speak to that audience and bring them into our electoral coalition so we can see more political success here in the province. Well, I was going to say, can you actually be a conservative or a center-right person in somewhere like downtown Toronto? Or, Absolutely. Uh, but, but, Ryan, I think if but, you look but at hold the on, list, hold on. Let, let me finish. Is that quite often what we've seen in the past with people that are downtown Toronto, they say, well, I'm a conservative, but they, they, they will push the progressive conservative side so much, like Margaret Thatcher once famously said, too much of the former, not enough of the latter. How do you, how do you stay within the center-right, appeal to people that are living that young urban lifestyle, uh, without watering it down so much that it's just liberals in blue ties. So I think this is where leadership actually matters, and you actually have to be talking with these people and not be the party of rural, old, white Ontario. If you look at the Toronto municipal election, 70% of Torontonians voted for a centre-right candidate between Don Tory and Doug Ford. We don't come anywhere near close to breaching 40 if we look at the federal and provincial elections in, across the city. So that, to me, tells you there's a huge gap of leadership and someone to actually do the math as to how we bring more people into the fold and engage that conversation as opposed to just writing everyone off as like, oh, they're downtown Toronto, they're champagne socialist, uh, let the pinkos be pink, we're going to be true brew and uh, have our litmus purity test out on the verbs. I, I've never seen such uh, um, uh, love for a politician as when I was at Ford headquarters on municipal election night. Rob and Doug were both there, and you had the most diverse crowd of ages, yeah. of ethnicities, of everything. And I've never met a politician that wouldn't love to have that type of devotion directed their way. Absolutely. And I think it's easy when you look at politics to have see your side and kind of dismiss the other. When you actually start to understand different factions or different political movements and actually see what motivates them and where they're coming from, that's when you can say, what? Like, Ford Nation tapped into a very real, genuine, legitimate voter sentiment and to continue to have support for that regard. So rather than like write them off of being the great unwashed, speak to them, talk with them, offer solutions, and show them the path as to how when you stitch these things together, 
you can uh, build more prosperity and opportunity by getting government out of the way. All right. How can we find out more about uh, Blue Skies Ontario? Blue Skies Ontario is uh, blueskiesontario.ca. We've just recently launched a podcast that you can subscribe to on iTunes and SoundCloud. And uh, we're on Twitter, Blue Skies ON. All right. James, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. Uh, Jamie Ellerton, my conversation with him at the Ontario Progressive Conservative Coalition. I'm not sure I agree with him on getting rid of the word conservative, but I understand why he's trying to to stay away from it. Like you said, proud member of the Conservative Party of Canada. By the way, a gay conservative activist who is pushing a conservative message but says, look, when you're approaching young people, you're approaching millennials who only hear conservatives being mocked on places like John Oliver or John Stewart or The Daily Show, anything like that using different terms might work. I kind of get that. Anyways, it is good that Jamie is pushing for different ideas. We need more of that. We need organizations outside of parties to push the agenda. And that's what he's trying to do. And and often, if you listen to him there, a very free market-oriented view. What was Marco Rubio talking about in the the clips I played from CPAC? Free enterprise. That's what Jamie was talking about. We need more of that in Canada. Coming up next, well, maybe not free enterprise from Ontario's PC leader, Patrick Brown. We'll bring you my conversation with the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario in a few moments. After nine, we'll get to your call. So I want you to listen to this interview with Patrick Brown and then... Get ready to call in. Tell me what you think. I know many of you aren't happy. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Uh, The kids with the pumped up kicks, they were out in full force on the weekend, man. The Ontario Progressive Conservative Party held their can- their big convention in Ottawa. Newly minted leader Patrick Brown was there. I think he shocked a lot of people when the only policy that he really flashed out during his speech on Saturday night was got to put a price on carbon. I want to bring you that speech now and then take your calls after 9 o'clock. Here is my conversation with Patrick Brown. Patrick Brown gave his speech. It was the the keynote address. It was. All in's the theme. Tell me about that. Well, the party, we're all in. We're all in that we need change in Ontario uh, and that we're not going to cede any ground. We're not going to cede any riding. We're not going to avoid talking about any subject. We're all in to make sure that we have a majority progressive conservative government in the next election. What what does it mean uh, when you say you're not going to leave any uh, ridings? Untouched. Did the party in the past say, well, you know, that riding over there is a write-off? There was a a history where there was target ridings where parts of the province simply were not visited. You know, we skipped the Northern Leaders debate um, in the last provincial election. I'm not going to skip any parts of the province. Uh, I want to make sure that we run full, energized, fully funded campaigns in every single riding in this province. I liked when you were talking about um, that doesn't matter where you're from, who you are, you've got a, a home in this party. I think that's an important message today. Um, do you think that wasn't the case before with the party, or are you, are you trying to change perceptions well, that your opponents put on you? Yeah, well, and, and part of it is, you know, the branding that the political opponents did, but the reality is um, 
the PC party a year and a half ago was 10,000 party members. Today it's 80,000. We are disproportionately young today. We're disproportionately diverse. If you look at some of the commentary about this convention, is that it looks like a very different crowd. The, the, the reality is we've been reaching out to nurses associations, to doctors, to correctional officers, to firefighters, police officers, and saying, you may not have felt comfortable before. Come home. Be part of the progressive conservative family. The speech last night, you mentioned taxes eight times. You said that taxes were too high, but you didn't talk about cutting taxes. In fact, the only policy that I saw that you really, you didn't flesh out any, but that you gave the most thought to was putting a price on carbon. Why? Well, let, let me say uh, this is the issue of the day. This is what we have first minister's meeting on it. The, there's legislation coming at, uh, at Queen's Park. Um, we had an extensive caucus uh, a meeting about this, and we believe we need a conservative uh, approach to the environment. Where the Liberals want to create a Liberal slush fund, and my response is that the cap-and-trade policy should be tax relief. It should be a dividend to, uh, to taxpayers in the form of broad-based tax relief. And let me say, it is, it, is, it is not a tax if the government doesn't use it. It is not a tax if the government returns it to taxpayers. Have you seen a, 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 a revenue-neutral carbon tax ever? Because I haven't seen them. British well, Columbia didn't work. Uh, you know, they tend to be very, very good for governments, and they end up being cash grabs. Well, you know, we hope to be the, fo the, the first progressive conservative government, the first conservative government that will actually create a revenue-neutral um, cap-and-trade. But, but why, why putting a price on carbon? I, I was looking at the actual carbon emissions. I mean, I could look at reports like from uh, John Fife at the University of Victoria who agrees with the UN in saying, you know what, global warming slowed down, we're in a hiatus. But if you just look at emissions, Ontario is actually well below 1990 levels. Uh, getting rid of the coal plants, losing a lot of manufacturing jobs, Ontario's more than met what the Kyoto yeah. commitment was. Well, and, so and, and, wh and, and, why is this well, still a big issue? Well, unfortunately, Ontario is, is meeting those targets not for good reasons. It's because we lost 350,000 manufacturing jobs. And I would note that the phase-out of coal was started by a progressive conservative premier, Ernie Eves. Um, you know, I, I believe climate change is a threat and it's something that our generation needs, needs to confront. I don't want us to be conservatives shying away to talk about the environment. I don't believe there's a contradiction in believing in conservatism uh, and conservation. Okay, but I'm just trying to figure out why a carbon tax or like what, what would you be looking at if you were well, designing actually, it? If you look at um, Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan when he had the acid rain treaty, mm -hmm. uh, the conservative approach was that polluters pay and that it's returned in tax relief. Uh, that's my approach. Polluters will pay, but it's returned in tax relief. Uh, our approach to uh, cap and trade, which is coming to Ontario, like it or not, you know, I believe the Liberals are, are taking the wrong approach and simply it's a cash grab, it's, it's a slush fund. But our approach to this is rather than it being a cash grab for government and, and creating larger, bigger government, it should be returned to Ontarians in terms of a dividend, a, a dividend to taxpayers, relief, broad-based tax relief for individuals and businesses. The uh, related issue, pipeline, this become, it's normally not a provincial issue. Pipelines that go across provincial boundaries, that, the feds take care of that. But now we've got provinces all trying to get a piece of the action or demands. If you were premier, how do you, or how do you think the current premier, or how would you deal we, with this issue? I believe we should support the pipeline that's in the national interest. Okay. The um, going forward uh, for Ontario, third biggest budget item is the debt. 
billion dollars a month. Three hundred and eight billion dollars in debt. It, it is astronomical. So, how would you tackle that? I mean, people will say you're conservatives. You're going to slash everything.、Um, how would you deal with the fact that we're paying a billion dollars a month in interest in the debt, and the Ontario taxpayers likely tapped out, especially with this this Ontario registered pension plan, which is not about pensions. It's about another. Pool of cash for Kathleen Wynne to build which, infrastructure. Which, which, by the way, will kill 54,000 jobs. It could cost as much as $1,643 in new taxes. Would I, you I, move forward with I, that, I, with I, the pension plan? Absolutely not. I think we should refund it and repeal it. It is, it is a bad proposal for Ontario. It is the absolute worst time for、uh, a new gigantic tax grab.、Um, in terms of where we could make Ontario more. Uh, efficient. Let me share with you some examples because we do have a huge problem. A billion dollars interest payment to foreign creditors is not acceptable.、Um, look at healthcare. We had a report recently by the Auditor General that in home care we spend 39 percent of the home care budget on administration. We spend far too much on administration, far too much on bureaucracy. You know, we're concerned about hospitals crumbling. We'll put money into the front lines, not into administration. You ask me one, you know, you, you try to find one nurse or doctor who supports the Lins, and they say it's just a, a buffer for the government. The government has invested in administration at the expense of of, of the front lines. Would you look at doing away with the the Lins? That that is absolutely something that I would I would look at. We have. Encourage that conversation at, at Queens Park, saying that we can't continue. We can't continue at、uh, creating more and more healthcare bureaucracy because what it results in is it crowds out the fiscal capacity for the government to actually support the real delivery of healthcare.、Um, let me raise something else in terms of the revenue problem the government、mm -hmm. has. The Conference Board of Canada says that we lose 3.7 billion dollars in revenue. In revenue for the government for jobs that aren't filled here, no one's willing to have the conversation that our education system is broken. We are graduating young people for jobs that existed 20 years ago, not the jobs of today. You know, why don't we have the conversation about bringing coding into the schools, enhanced computer literacy, mandatory financial literacy in the schools? Instead, you know, we graduated 9,000 teachers last year for 5,000 teaching positions. We have students coming out of school with student debts for a job that will never exist, and government is doing that. And frankly, it's unethical. Well, that that must get them some revenue, though. They're taking the money. It, it, it is unethical to young people to create an education system, to create and subsidize those. First of all, they're subsidizing those those、uh, those degrees, having students come with student debts, knowing full well there's no job at the end of the road. The Conference Board of Canada is right. It, it, the skills gap in Ontario is atrocious. Fifty-two percent of infrastructure and engineering firms in Ontario had to look outside of Ontario because there weren't the students here with the qualifications for those jobs. I want to train those young people in Ontario. Are, so, are we losing out on jobs as well? Are, are jobs relocating to other jurisdictions? It, it's one of the. There's a number of reasons why we're seeing businesses leave Ontario. Whether it's high tax, whether it's red tape, whether it is the environment we have in Ontario today that's hostile to investment.、Um, but one of the reasons is is, is the skill shortage. I've heard that、uh, from businesses, and we have to we have to confront that challenge in Ontario. What I want to see us talk about in provincial politics is linking education to to the market today, to to market opportunities, to employment opportunities. The notion that we don't even pay attention to that、um, is is unbelievable. 
Let me ask you about uh, turning around the economy. Ontario used to be a major manu manufacturing hub for the whole country, and you referenced the 350,000 jobs. I've been listening to politicians for almost 20 years tell me that we've got to move to a, a knowledge-based economy and away from manufacturing, but not everyone's going to work in a knowledge-based economy. Do you have a, a commitment to manufacturing in Ontario? Should Ontario still be a place where people make things? Absolutely. I don't want to give up on the manufacturing sector. If you listen to some of the complaints from those in the manufacturing world, you know what they're saying? They're saying universally that the ORPP, this payroll tax, will kill jobs. It will drive manufacturing away. When GM is saying they're going to the states and they're not going to you know, potentially be in Ontario after 2017, one of the reasons is because of policies like the payroll tax. One of the reasons is because we have the fastest growing electricity prices in North America. We can keep manufacturing. We can grow manufacturing if we actually have an environment that says we want business in Ontario. Instead, we have a situation today where Manitoba, Quebec, New York, and Michigan are running economic development departments in Ontario, poaching our jobs. You know why? Because it's more affordable to do business elsewhere. Patrick Brown, thank you very much. My pleasure. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself, Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. I'm liking that term, the leader of the unofficial opposition. There's nothing official about this program, but we will be in opposition to those who make boneheaded decisions. Now, we played the interview with Patrick Brown earlier, and I want to get some thoughts in on that and get to your calls on Patrick Brown calling for a price on carbon. It's the only, only policy actually f fleshed out in his speech. We'll get into more on that in a minute. Five, if you have thoughts on it, 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility, or 1-800-580-2372. This is the part of the program where we will look for your feedback. So if you want to have a say, 521-TALK, 521-8255. Before I give you some quick thoughts on, on Patrick Brown, I mentioned earlier that my friend Joe Warmington, one of the great gumshoe reporter types in the media still has a new column out where he talks about an Afghan interpreter who worked with Canadian forces for three years, was promised he could come to Canada and is now being left in limbo. I want to get Joe on for a couple of minutes quickly here to fill us in and you can read his piece. I've tweeted it out. We'll Facebook it later and you can find it on the Sun websites. Joe, welcome to the program. Tell us what's going on here, man. Yeah, first of all, congratulations on the new show, and it's really a great pleasure to be with you and, and in Ottawa, too, with all the great listeners. Uh, it's a story I've been writing about since December uh, about this guy named James Akam. That's kind of his nickname. He has a more formal Afghan name, but okay. he uh, served uh, with the RCRs. In fact, there's a guy named Eric Kirkwood, who became a guest for you tonight, who lives in Ottawa, served two tours in Afghanistan. To know this guy, as 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 many others too, that served with him in Kandahar, and you know, again, uh, at first they wouldn't let him come here, even though that there was a, a process to allow people like him to come here. They're worried about different things, but you know, the reality was he was with these troops for three years. I mean, he had ample opportunity to show his allegiance to the Taliban. He didn't. He protected our guys and gals. 
and there's numerous stories of that. So we were fighting for him. Eric Kirkwood brought attention. I took it on. And to his credit, Minister McCallum, John McCallum, uh, and obviously the former Veterans Affairs Minister O'Toole, they were very, very supportive of this. And they told him that he could come here. It was on Twitter. And since then, they're just dragging their feet. He's in a refugee camp in Germany. His uh, visa to O'Brien expires tomorrow. Probably expired now because they're ahead of us in time. And we don't know if happen. He thinks he's going to put in a brown paper bag and send back to Afghanistan. For so, sure so, so, so here's a guy. Right. Here's a guy that stood by our troops for three years. And if McCallum doesn't move, if the department and, and, and look, d- despite my views of the current government, I know that it's not always the minister. I, you know, from from dealing with uh, Chris Alexander, Jason Kenny before him, Monty Salberg before him. You know, I, I go back years dealing with these guys like you do. And, and, and it's not always the minister. Sometimes it's the bureaucrats dragging their feet until someone like you shines a light on it. And that's a lot it, of trouble. And that could be church. what's happening here. You know, I don't know what's happening here. I don't know if that's it. Uh, I'd like to get an explanation because the minister said that you could find this on Twitter. It's in my column. He said he would be pleased to bring him here, and he would instruct his staff to quick. That has not happened. Uh, look at the, the guy deserves to come here. His family is in Afghanistan. He has a promise from the minister. Now, uh, this uh, group of people at immigration, they're playing a really funny game uh, right now, and they're trying to dodge and weave and run out the clock. I don't know what the motivation is. I know that all the media were interested in pandas today with the prime minister and 60 minutes last night, Kim Cattrall, all that. But here's a guy who has done more than all those 25,000 Syrians combined for the country. And there are another uh, 25 or 30 over there similar that are sitting there hiding and hoping that the Taliban or ISIS don't catch up and kill them and their family. So this is, in my view, a national crisis because if we're going to leave our men and women from the field, on the field, the ones that wore the Canadian uniform with their troops, uh, then we they aren't worth uh, anything. And uh, that's why I brought it to our attention. And I've been very, very patient. My patience has run out. I'm very worried, too. All right, Joe. Uh, we got to run in a minute, but uh, I just saw the um, CTV News Channel carrying a story about your friend Doug uh, Rob Ford back yeah. in a hospital. I saw Doug on the weekend at the Ontario PC convention. He's very involved in Ontario politics. Uh, I asked him, I said, Doug, I'm coming back with cameras tomorrow. Can you stick around for an interview? He said, I'm sorry. I got to go back to Toronto. Rob's not doing well. Um, do you gotta, oh. Can you give us a quick 30-second update on, on Rob well, and, and what's going on? Yeah, I mean, honestly, Doug, no better because he's part of the family. I'm on the outside of that. But what I've been able to tell is that it really is a struggle for him. I mean, obviously, he's into the secondary round of cancer. He's had, I think, six or seven chemo. It's the most that really anybody could ever endure. So they're into this business now of trying to get a clinical trial going, which tells me that, you know, they may not be too optimistic to operate again. He's got two tumors that have come back. So uh, I guess it's prayer time. I mean, Doug has been very quick about that. Websites and different things that people can can do that. Uh, look at it. Whatever you think of him politically, I've known the guy for 15 or 16, 17 years, whatever it is. He's a hell of a good guy, and he's done a lot of things for the community. And, yes, he had his addictions, and he had his issues, but he never stole a penny from anybody, and he worked all the time. And, sure, he had his demons, but that's in the past. Right now, 
he's fighting for his life. And, uh, you know, I first met him. He was a football coach, and he was a guy who worked 20 hours a day. And, you know, he's an award healer. He'd go out and help people. And now he's uh, kind of, you know, one of the most famous politicians in Canada. So uh, people really do care about him, uh, even the people that didn't like him politically. And uh, we're all praying for Rob for tonight. All right. Amen to that, Joe. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, uh, Brian. I'll be listening in on the Patrick Brown stuff. I can't wait to hear it. All right. Joe Warmington, the scrawler from the Toronto Sun. You can read him quite often in the Ottawa Sun as well. Check out his column on that. Now, I want to get to your calls on Patrick Brown in a moment. But let me just say this. There was some good in what Patrick Brown had to say during my interview with him. There was some, you know, the all-in concept. If you live in Ontario, you've got a home in the Progressive Conservative Party. I like that. When he says, I don't care how much money you've got, I don't care where you worship, I don't care where you're from, we've got principles, we're here. I like that. I even like the new logo. But in his speech, in his keynote speech, he had a time to say, a chance to say, hey, we've got something different going on. He mentioned taxes. You heard me reference this in my interview with him. He mentioned taxes eight times. But he didn't say, and he often said taxes are too high, but he didn't say, I'm going to cut taxes. The only definitive thing he said about taxes was we've got to put a price on carbon. And from friends that were in the room when he made those comments, and I'll admit I was not, apparently the energy just was sucked out of the room. People could not believe that Patrick Brown was essentially endorsing Kathleen Wynne's vision for a price on carbon. Now, he will tell you he's not. But the, the, the federal conservatives are saying now's not the time. Our economy is too shaky. Now's not the time to put a price on carbon, which is essentially a tax on everything. Think about it. You put a price on carbon, doesn't matter if it's a head of lettuce, a car, a pair of jeans, anything that moves by boat, rail, truck, it's going up in price because there's a price on carbon. Filling your car, heating your home, the price is going up. So it is a tax on everything. The conservatives were right in 2008 when they ran against the green shift as a tax on everything. And Patrick Brown endorsed it. Now, he's saying he'll do it different, and he'll, you know, bring in big tax cuts. That's not Kathleen Wynne's plan. She doesn't believe in tax cuts at all. We know that. But I want to hear from you. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580. You don't want to call? Send me an email, beyondthenews at cfra.com, or you can comment on Facebook or Twitter. We'll get to all of that in a few minutes. But I want to hear from you. What do you think of Patrick Brown, the only policy that he was fully enunciating at the Ontario PC convention was a price on carbon? I have to say I was shocked. Now, please, you know, either on the podcast later or at therebel.media, you can watch the interview at The Rebel, you can listen to the interview in the podcast, you will hear good things in it. But what do you think of his promise to put a price on carbon? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility, if you are on your mobile phone. You want to find out more? The latest headlines? You go to CFRA.com. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments.
Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Brian Lilly, Beyond the News, welcome to the program. I'm asking you what you think about Patrick Brown saying he wants to put price on carbon. And before I get to your calls, let me just tell you what Environment Canada says about this issue. Environment Canada actually says that Ontario is below 1990 levels. Why is that important? Well, with 1990 levels, get our carbon below 1990 levels. Where have I heard that before? Every freaking report on the Kyoto Protocol since 1997. That's where you've heard it before. That's right. And Environment Canada says we're there. Environment Canada says we long ago passed the fact that we're below 1990 levels. The government of Ontario, in a report from Environment Minister Glenn Murray, says that we are below 1990 levels. Let me read to you from the report. In 1990, greenhouse gas emissions in Ontario were 177 megatons. In 2012, according to the Government of Canada's latest National Inventory Report, emissions in Ontario were down to 167 megatons. Hmm. Interesting. They went up, then we cut off the coal-fired plants, then we lost 350,000 manufacturing jobs, and our emissions went down. By the way, if you go by Environment Canada numbers, we're actually well below 6% below 1990 levels, which was the promise that Jean Chrétien made for all of Canada at Kyoto. Why did he make that promise? Well, he wanted to one-up Bill Clinton, his friend. The American, he wanted to show that Canada was better than Americans. Oh, just like J.T. freaking Trudeau. Dave in Nevin. Dave, you are on Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Good evening, Brian. How do you feel about Patrick Brown saying he wants to put a price on carbon? Well, first of all, I'm a conservative, and let me just start by saying congratulations on your new show. Thank you. I'm a rebel subscriber and a conservative and to be quite honest with you, I uh, I actually voted for Patrick Brown to be leader of the Conservative Party of Ontario. But as of this weekend, he lost my support. You know, when they talk well, about... When they l- talk l- about let the, me ask you then. Yeah. I mean, he said some... If you Did you listen to the interview that I did with yes, him? Yes, I listened to the interview. He, he said some good things. And this is the one troubling thing that has me saying, wait a minute, wh- whether it's the fact that Ontario's well below Kyoto promises or the fact that the U.N. says there's a climate uh, global warming hiatus or the, the new study that agrees with the U.N., you know, why is this the, uh, the issue? But did, did you like some of what he said? Well, some of what he said, but frankly, it, it's about, about gaining power, you know, the all-inclusiveness and so on. When these people talk about greenhouse gas emissions, the environment, climate change, Carbon, which is another one, global warming, we're ta- they're all euphemisms for carbon dioxide. We're talking about carbon dioxide. It's not a pollutant. My, my 11-year-old calls it a tax on breathing. That's my 11-year-old well, daughter. It. You know, the atmosphere is at four, approximately 400 parts per million. We breathe out 4,000 parts per million. We're, they never speak, they always speak about the about the negativity associated with carbon dioxide emissions, they never speak of the benefits. For example, the higher crop yields. So, you know, what, trees why, and crops breathe carbon dioxide. Why do you think he's doing this then? 
I, I have no idea. But frankly, it, it makes it, you know, he's, he's a red conservative. He's a red liberal, if you will. You know, from my perspective, there's no distinguishing him from the Liberal Party of Canada right at this point in time. Well, let me ask you something. Okay, go ahead. Ted Cruz, who is probably going to be the next president of the United States, in my opinion. Well, I hope so. When he announced his intent to run for presidency, he specifically stated climate change is a scam. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, No, I do not recall that. But I do, because I think climate change is a scam as well. And when he made that statement, it stuck with me. Well, if you you listen to the show last week when I was filling in for Rob in the middle of the day, I read off a new study saying that, you know, the warming had stopped. Yet another study. Dave, I got to run. Thanks for the call. Okay, bud. Want to go to Alan in Ottawa. Alan, your thoughts on Patrick Brown and the issue of a car... I don't want to say a carbon tax because he may say cap and trade, but he says price on carbon. Hello, Alan? Alan. All right. No, Alan. Michelle in Ottawa, your thoughts on a price on carbon? Hello? Hi, Michelle. You, your thoughts on a price on carbon? Yes. I'm sorry. I got a little confused because I heard the other voice. I think it's just a... a it's a tax. It's a tax. It's a tax. If I give you money, is that going to change... Is it going to help? Okay, we're having problems with the phones here uh, for a minute. Let me try that again. Michelle, are you still there? I'm here. Okay. Can you hear me? Yep. Sorry, I'm just saying that a tax is a tax is a tax. You can wrap it up in any doomsday scenario you want. It's another cash grab, and it's ridiculous. And he should get the job before he loses the job. I mean, he's just as dorky as Tim Hudak, in my opinion, and he didn't get my vote, and... It's. I just and I heard you just a few moments ago. I'm I'm in the car. Sorry, and you were saying that they're drop. They're considering some group is considering dropping the word conservative. Well, they're pushing uh, to to try and attract millennials. They're saying center right instead of conservatives, and their reasoning is that young people all they hear about conservatives is when the likes of John Stewart and John Oliver and all these late night comedians make fun of conservatives. So if you that's want wanna, to, that's why they want to use center right. I get what they're going for. I'm not sure I agree with it. It's insulting to your intelligence. It's still the conservative party. Call it whatever you want. And if you really want to engage these kids, advertise and get their interest and deal with the criticisms, take it head on. If anything at all, We've learned what's happening in the States with Donald Trump is stop the BS and make it interesting and people will come. All right. But this Mi- is it's just too old news, old news. Michelle, thanks for the call. You're welcome. All right. We'll have more of your calls on Patrick Brown and the carbon tax. Plus, Guy, the Capitol voice standing by. He was out at the meeting tonight on the issue of the civic hospital and its new location. He's going to come on and give us a quick update. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Wrapping up 
the first edition of Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. If you ever hear me describing things that people in Ottawa should know, let me just tell you off the top that first off, I know from living in Ottawa for a long time that there are people that never leave their pockets. But secondly, I also know from experience that when I'm on and I'm spreading the word on social media, I will have people listening in California. I know there's a big chunk living listening in Florida. Uh, I was visiting with them last week, and it's not my mother who, despite her son starting a show tonight, said, I don't know, Wheel of Fortune starts at 7. Um, you know, I know there's people across the country, across Canada listening in, and you're welcome to call anytime on any of the topics that, that we talk to when we get to open line or feedback sections. So I say that because I want to tee up the, the fight around the civic campus of the Ottawa Hospital. Ottawa is odd in that we've got an experimental farm, a federal government-run farm in the middle of the city. And right across from it is the civic campus, which was built in what, 1920-something? I'll look that up. They need a new location for the Ottawa Hospital, a hospital in the middle of the city. I'm sure when it was built, that was not the middle of the city, but it is now. And to find that much land, we've either got to move the hospital out of the city or build somewhere like on the land right across the street. Take up some of the land of the experimental farm. Well, that has caused a great deal of consternation among some activists. Activists that, funny enough, I think vote liberal. We're being told by Yasser Nakvi, if you heard him on with Evan Solomon earlier, well, we, we, we need consultation and we, and we need to get to the point where we're talking to people. Excuse me, but the federal government turned over this land for the civic campus in 2014. You, Jack Kitts, you've heard him on the airwaves saying they started talking about this in 2006. That's a decade of consultation, Mr. Nakvi. This is not about consultation to make sure that we get the right space. It's that we get the space that doesn't offend your supporters. Guy. Guy Annable, the Capital Voice, was out at the meeting tonight. He's on the line now. Guy, what, you were out at the, uh, the what is it, the Conference Center at the Hampton Inn on Coventry Road. What were you hearing tonight? Well, Brian, the dynamic was very interesting. I had the whole thing on tape, and we'll post it uh, to you for your review as well if you want to use it. Uh, first of all, I want to congratulate you, congratulate you on your inaugural show. Thank you. The, the dynamic was very interesting because... As you know, we've been hearing all day, and we heard from both Catherine McKenna tonight in about a seven-minute clip, and Yasser Nakfi in about a seven-minute introduction as well before Jack Kitts got up, just to set the stage here, that the new site, we heard about this, the new site, the new choice, the reset button, we're pushing the reset button, we're finally giving people consultation, we're going to get this right this time. Now, I'm not... Let me just interrupt for a second, Guy. I can understand the position Jack Kitts is in. Oh, he, yeah, he go ahead. he's between a rock and a hard place, and and he's got to play ball, or he's not getting anything. Brian, that dynamic was very evident tonight, and a lot of the participants in the room saw it. There was four senior administrators, as well as Mr. Kitts there tonight, who reiterated at least five to seven times. There is 12 criteria that we chose, and we looked at 14 sites over a six-year period. Transit, accessibility, 
uh, transformation of the existing site. So we've got to start all over again. No, Brian, the whole thing is, too, the cost of moving an existing hospital is horrendous. So what we had is about probably 150 friends of the farm with Riley Brockington on one side of the room. We had a couple of NCC commissioners. Uh, a former CFRA host was also in attendance. I guess he was, uh, he's also, I guess, a resident of the area. And it was very, very interesting. The dynamic played out in that the four administrators are in a very precarious position because they have to play ball with the two levels of government that are going to approve this, both the province and the feds. And now that we have sunny ways, Jack Kitts is saying, we looked at 14 places. We looked at everything. So what the federal government said and Yasser said tonight, which I found very interesting, they said, all we want to do is make sure that nothing has changed since the last process in 2014 when the land was created. Now, I don't know if that's LRT. I don't know if there's an additional. They're, they're talking about Booth Street. There was a couple of claps about that. There's some excellent questions, excellent questions from uh, Bob Brocklebank, as well as some other people uh, in the audience. There was a few NIMBYs there as well, and, and obviously the Friends of the Farm uh, were, were omnipresent. But at the end of the day, Brian... He was talking about you can't separate a trauma center from this center. We have a $2 billion heart institute. We have helicopter pads. We have transit. We have Carling Avenue. We're close to the Queensway. All the criteria and the cost of possibly even moving or shutting down the civic campus accounting site would be horrendously expensive and not logical uh, to do. And, you know, Yasser and Catherine, you're kind of sitting there going, you know, well, you know, this is not what we wanted to hear. And Jack's saying, you know, this is 10 years. Well, it's um, Jack Kitts is someone I've covered as a reporter. He's someone who runs a good hospital. And I say that all four of my kids were born at the Ottawa Hospital. As was uh, Yasser's new child he just had two weeks ago. I only have good experiences with the Ottawa Hospital. I can't Mm -hmm. say that for everywhere in the city. Um, This... You look at the general campus, this is a location that uh, has trouble with transit. It has all the things that, or, or has all the problems that the current civic campus does not, that they're trying to avoid. You can't get there easily by car. You can't get there easily by transit. You can't get there easily at all. It's a pain in the butt. And the one thing that would make it easier to get to, extending Conroy Road up to Smythe, well, no, the NIMBYs won't let that happen, no. even though it's been on the books for 50 years. So, they, they don't call it Ottawa for nothing, Brian, but the thing that I found... Welcome was, to Ottawa. You can't get there from here. Yeah. The, the interesting thing, though, as well as the 60 acres goes, we have to realize that there is 6,000 acres of farmland in the Central Experimental Farm. 60 acres on the northwest hold, corner. Hold, hold on. 6,000 just in that area where the... Yes, sir. Where they want to put the the hospital, yes. where the agriculture museum is, six thousand acres right there. Yes, that's correct. So they're worried about sixty one percent. Yes, that's correct. And it's already on existing transit line. It's close to the uh, it's close to the uh, Queensway. It is it links up with existing trauma centers. You see, there's a whole bunch of factors that these administrators exemplified tonight, which people don't even realize that went into the criteria. And I think Catherine and both Yasser were sitting there going. Ooh, ooh, uh, this is going to be tougher than I thought. But you know what? They want to look like they're consulting. They want to basically try and at least put on a good face. 
But at the end of the day, Brian, I think the dynamic is it's the old story. They want to rip up everything the conservatives did. Now, well, they talk about backroom maybe, deals. Maybe they'll move the Guy, i got to hold you there, yeah, uh, but no I'm problem. sure we'll be continue to talk about this. Yes, sir. Maybe they'll just rip up the Queensway-Carlton deal as well. Thanks for the call. Thank you, Brian. I want to point out, two hospitals in Ottawa needed new land or existing land from the federal government to continue to operate. John Baird and the Conservatives helped both of them. The Queensway Carlton. That could have been over and done with. That could have been shut down. That could have been a problem. John Baird got it solved. And the Conservative government. They got this solved. How did Ottawa reward them? Wiping out every Conservative in the city except Pierre Polliver. Interesting. Couple more calls on uh, Patrick Brown and the carbon tax. Gloria in Ottawa, you're on Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Hi, congratulations to you. Thank you. (laughs) I'm glad you're on. I'm having fun. Good. You know, the thing is, nobody but nobody will quote any carbon figure numbers, and nobody or will they quote that Canada's uh, carbon emissions are only 1.5%. Well, well let, let me quote carbon emission numbers. In 1990, greenhouse gas emissions on Ontario were 177 megatons. In 2012, mm-hmm. what were they at? 167 megatons. I have other numbers that actually show we're well below the 6% number that Cretchen promised for Kyoto. Well, the, you know what? These, there is so much deceit going on. I mean, you know, the thing is, I guess if Patrick Brown, maybe he feels that if he he didn't want a carbon tax, that he he's uh, he it looks like he's not concerned about the the atmosphere and and the air we're breathing. And and the thing is, he's swimming against a huge tidal wave of, of eco alarmists that say, "Oh, we must lower our carbon output." We don't hardly have a carbon output. I mean, hey, but, what a- but but let me ask you this: Let me play devil's advocate mm-hmm. because I could just pile on Patrick Brown as well, and I'm not crazy about it. And if you've been listening for a while, Gloria, you know that. But mm-hmm. he's got to try and do something that deflects the Toronto-based liberal media from just saying you're a denier, you're a this, you're a that. Exactly. He wants to be. He wants to be in so inclusive. He wants to have show that the, the conservatives are a party for all seasons type of thing. I mean, the thing is, I think behind it all, that's the only thing I can think of, because. Uh, he, it doesn't make sense. He's going along and he's just parroting the same thing as as uh, his uh, uh, opponents are, as his political opponents are. So he's he's got to show that that he's he's trying to be inclusive. And yes, you can vote conservative. We're going to look after you and the environment type of thing. You know, not that we want them breathing down our necks. But the thing, another thing too is. Uh, how much do the oceans of the world, which covers three quarters of this planet, how much carbon dioxide do, uh, does the uh, oceans emit, which is is, is contributing factor to, to the to the carbon dioxide in the air? Do you know what I mean? There's I do. So much. And the thing is, if I just may say this, right, la- this cap- last point, and I got to move on. Yes. Okay. It's, it's about the cap and trade. This has shown in European countries to be uh, an, uh, an opportunity. Uh, for political corruption. And oh, it's it's great for the mafia. Exactly, and the thing is, governments award carbon credits to industries for for for, uh, for contributions. And the thing is, uh, uh, when I mean. Cap and trade is right up her alley. You name me one time, one, I call it a corruption tool for her. 
you name the one uh, corruption tool that Catherine, Kathleen Wynne wouldn't love to get her hands on, and that's all she's doing. It's a corruption tool for her. It has nothing to do with the atmosphere and the carbon dioxide. Thanks for the call, Gloria. I don't know what Gloria is talking about. The Kathleen Wynne would ever be corrupt. Oh, wait. Story in the Globe and Mail today for 6,000 donors or for $6,000, donors get FaceTime with Kathleen Wynne and Bob Shirelli. The Ontario Liberal Party is teaming up with a high-powered lobbying firm to sell one-on-one access to Premier Kathleen Wynne and Energy Minister Bob Shirelli in a fundraising event this week. Before I go to commercial, I have to ask you, have you signed our petitions? Firebob.ca or firewind.ca? I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News on News Talk 580 CFRA. On the news with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Mary in Alexandria writes in about Patrick Brown. With Patrick Brown's statement, this means there's no more Conservative Party in Ontario. He's endorsing the eco fascist lie. We are doomed. Dan O writes in I was in shock when Patrick Brown condoned a carbon price tax. It's just wrong. I'm not a PC member, but did contribute $750 to the feds in 2015 election. Just got my supporter card. Well, they are two different parties. Always remember that, Dan. Owen writes in, I thought Patrick Brown was going to be a good leader for the Conservative Party in Ontario, but now he has shown his true colors and is not a real leader, but just another politician like the others. And Robert White, who threatened to leave Ottawa if he did not win the mayoralty race, writes to me and says, I support Patrick's Brown, Patrick Brown's policy, points and disagree with the caller that swore he would never vote for him again. Brown is correct to accept carbon-based taxation due to the fact that all levels of governance are going in that direction. His approach seems to be progressive, and that's what I expect of our party leader. There's a conversation for another day. Progressive and conservative, two words that should never go together. My take on Patrick Brown? I think he's wrong to say that we need a price on carbon because that will lead to a carbon tax, and that is just a money grab for government. But don't write them off yet. There are some good things there. There are good things that he said in his interview. You can listen to the interview later on the podcast, or you can go to my Facebook page right now. I've posted it there. If it's not there, it's at therebel.media, and check it out. Let's get to some calls before the end of the show. Tim in Navin, you are on Beyond the News with Brian Lively. Hey, Brian. What are your Uh, thoughts on Patrick Brown? Do you think you're up for a 25-year run? A 25-year run of what? On this, uh, on this show. <laughs> well, we'll see about that. It's, it's the first <laughs> night. Don't get me going yet. Um, I have a big problem with it. Um, when you look at the main motivation of this whole green carbon movement, it's all based in people making money. It's got nothing to do with anything to do with the environment or uh, cleaner air or anything like that. It's all about setting some people up to make a boatload of money. Al Gore made out like a bandit off the Chicago exchange. Al Gore. That exchange shut down. Well, that exchange in Chicago shut down. It was supposed to be a, a market driven force to price carbon. It shut down because no one wanted to trade it. 
But let, let me just throw this out at you, Tim, and I throw this out to Alan and Campbell, who are waiting on the line. We'll get to you before the end of the program. But is this a deal breaker? At one point, Stephen Harper had said he would look at a cap and trade or other similar measures, but then he backed off of it. Is this a deal breaker for you that there's no way you would support him uh, if he stays with this? Um, I'm not willing to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but just look at a couple of things with this. Who is impacted the most by any of this carbon talk? Rural people? People in the rural areas. It is farmers. Has anyone come up with another source of energy to run the combines, the tractors, all the large equipment that farmers need? It is an energy-dense, occupation I say you just you harness the energy Tim you just got to harness the cow farts I think it comes down to that thanks <laughs> well, for the call there, there are farmers trying to do that and are running into roadblocks <laughs> <laughs> thanks for the call Alan in Ottawa you're on beyond the news with Brian Lilly hello Alan okay let me put you on hold and try this again Alan in Ottawa you there yeah, I'm here. Okay, trouble with the phone uh, lines. I think Bill Carroll screwed this up. Bill said he didn't know how to work this phone system, and I've been working it for four years, and I've never had these problems. I think Bill Carroll messed it up this morning. Well, anyhow, what, what are your quick thoughts? Uh, no more taxes. We can't afford it. Now, uh, Brown says if he brought in carbon pricing, he would give it back in income tax cuts and other tax cuts. Is that good for you? No, because I only earn $10,000 a year. I'm an ODSP. And every time they raise it, we get a 1% raise. Like, electricity has went up 50%, and they give us a 1% raise. Every time they tax us, we're losing more money for, for food and, you know, whatever else we need. I've got a small dog. Every time it came to the vet, it's $300. You know, okay, it's yeah. just so unfair. No, it, it, it's not. I mean, uh, we just had uh, Tim on saying it's really going to hurt people in the rural areas as well. I used to live in the rural areas, heated my home with uh, oil. I can't I imagine what that'll do. You know, it, it, anything that moves by truck, Allen, is going to go up in price now. Except for the price of gas. <laughs> well, that's going up as well. Thanks for the call. Going to hit Campbell in Vanier before the end of the show. Campbell, last word to you. Campbell, are you there? Hello? Yeah, okay, we're on now. You got me? Yep. Okay. Uh, several people have congratulated you, which is quite right. I want to say good luck with the new gig. Mm-hmm. And I just quickly say I've been fascinated waiting for this day to see how the whole, you know, the whole new lineup is going to work, where you're headed, going with this. But regarding Mr. Brown and following on what uh, Gloria said a few minutes ago, um, first of all, I've been listening through the evening wondering, you answered your, the question that I had in mind. You said the, the two words, progressive and conservative, don't belong together. Yeah, we'll get into that. I've I got lots of speeches on that. Okay, but to go to Patrick Brown, I think that it's interesting to consider. There's a, you can see an analogy with the way the NHL is always seeing off the Canadian fans uh, to try to get more American fans. And the simple reason is they know that hockey fans in Canada are going to put up with anything because there's nowhere else to go. And I'm afraid that the same thing may be happening with the Conservatives in uh, Ontario, where, as you say, he's looking for the millennials. I guess it's a, it's a way of saying he's, he's trying to take the party just enough to the left to grab some more votes, right? Mm-hmm. While remaining conservative or at least PC. 
And um, I suppose that the, the essence of it is um, the rural people, the 905, the uh, Rob Ford people, the, the conservative base isn't quite enough to win anymore. So in order to get more people into his tent, he's willing to move a little bit toward the center, as he says, or maybe toward the left. But do you not think that uh, it's partly because, to some degree, the good old solid old conservative core hasn't got anywhere else to go? So they'll put up with anything. Eventually, they'll get used to this whole carbon uh, pricing thing, and it'll be sort of like you know just part of the atmosphere. And he'll be dealing with other issues to try to get elected. Well, you, 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 you see what I, I'm saying? I see what you're saying. I got to cut you there, Campbell. We'll continue this conversation on another another day. Let me say this: conservatives win when they run on conservative principles. They don't win when they try and be liberals with blue ties. Patrick Brown had a lot of good things to say. I encourage you to go back and listen to the interview, either in the podcast or on The Rebel. Speaking of The Rebel, you want to join me on a Rebel cruise? Going through the the Caribbean with myself, Ezra Levant, and others, therebelcruise.ca. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Back tomorrow night.